0: Hello and welcome to the At Sea Level podcast brought to you by Intelligent Briefings, a Lynchpin Media brand. My name is Alex Presley and I'm the Lead Editor at Lynchpin Media, primarily covering cybersecurity, data centers and regional projects across Europe. And I'm Jess Phillips, Director of Strategic Content at Lynchpin Media. This is the podcast where we speak to technology chiefs about how they're making waves in the industry, chatting to them about their career journey so far, their management style, and how they're planning for what's yet to come. We hope it will be insightful for aspiring CIOs, CISOs, CEOs, in fact, the entire C-suite. Delighted to welcome today's guest, Perry Carpenter, Chief Strategy Officer at know Before to at C-Level. Henry Carpenter, author and podcast host, currently serves as Chief Evangelist and Strategy Officer for know Before, provider of one of the world's largest security awareness and simulated phishing platforms. Previously, he led security awareness, security culture management and anti-phishing behaviour management research at Gartner Research, in addition to covering areas of IAM strategy, CISO programme management mentoring and technology service provider success strategies. With a long career as a security professional and researcher, Perry has broad experience in North America and Europe, providing security consulting and advisory services for many of the best-known global brands. Perry holds a Master of Science in Information Assurance from Norwich University and is a Certified Chief Information Security Officer. Perry, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us where you're joining from, first of all, please?
1: Yeah, I am in the United States, and uh, right now I'm located in Arkansas.
0: So Perry, you are the first Chief Strategy Officer to join us on Apsi Level. Can you give us an overview of what the role entails, please?
1: Yeah, so it's a, for me, it's a hodgepodge role. So when I came to know before, um, Stu, who's the CEO, said, what do you want to do? And it was really five or six different things that that I had in mind and so, and then he asked the secondary question: Is what do you want to be called? And so, I had this uh, background where prior to no before I worked at Gartner as a as a research director, um, and had done uh, prior to that a lot of work um, management work at Fortune 500 companies and global companies where we're pulling together lots of different uh, strategic projects and so i didn't want to lose any of those things i kind of wanted to keep my focus on um, some of the the media and pr and analyst stuff and i also wanted to integrate into product development and marketing and mergers and acquisitions and all of that so when you when you add all of that together it comes into Uh, you know, the strategy bubble. Um, And then I've also got a secondary title, which is the chief evangelist for the company. And so my job really day to day is to be thinking about how do we make the biggest impact now with the people that we're talking to, with the people that we're interacting with, and with the product that we bring to to, uh, market right now. But then how do we think about the you know, the market landscape three to five years from now? And what are the critical decisions that we need to make today um, related to maybe a merger or an acquisition or related to um, finding a market gap and starting to build product to close that gap or to find a market message that um, has been ignored right now, but is going to resonate with our potential buyer and how we build towards that message?
0: So you're always thinking quite far ahead then and keeping your finger on the pulse when it comes to new tech trends and things like that.
1: Yeah, as much as possible, you know, crystal balls aside.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, this section of the podcast is what we call Memory Lane, and it's where we take a trip down Memory Lane to find out about your career journey to date. And we always warn our guests that the first question requires a little bit of imagination. Okay. Um, so, let's just pretend we've managed the impossible and we've created a time machine, and you've used that time machine to go back in time, come face to face with a 16 year old version of yourself. Possibly the year you finished school, maybe made some big Decisions about your future. How would you today describe your current job role to that person and what do you think they'd make of it?
1: Yeah. So, the person that I was at 16 years old is um, not somebody that was thinking about the job that I'm doing right now. So, um, as I look at your background um, behind you, I had a, a room full of guitars and musical instruments and I thought that I was going to go into recording professionally. Um, but what I started to realize is that um, I like that, but that could always be something that I added to my life somewhere else. Um, And there were a couple other things that started to really take my interest. Um, Some of those had to do with um, just the intricacies of the way that life works. And so one of my degrees was in philosophy. Another one was in biblical languages, um, I had a partial law degree that I went and realized I did not want to practice law for my life. Um, and so for me, the thing that I would understand as a 16 year old is that you can build a career that is extremely multifaceted that pulls in lots of different life experiences and then leverages that out in a completely unique way that only uh, only somebody who has lived that life can can bring that value uh, out and so, um, right now, if I were talking to me as, as a 16-year-old, I'd say there are, are tons of cool things that you're going to be able to do related to security and and all of the fun things that immediately come to mind whenever you think about security. So I was old enough that at 16 um, was around, you know, the the year that, you know or the time frame that war games, you know the Matthew Matthew Broderick movie was in, and sneakers and those kind of movies. So I had an understanding of of security and all of the the things that related around that. And I, I think if I were to tell myself, you're gonna live in that world and you're going to be working with those kind of people for the good of society in a lot of ways to bring a stronger society, to bring a stronger uh, culture forward, and you're going to be u- be able to use a very multifaceted um, kind of liberal arts view of the world in order to do that, I think that I would be extremely uh, extremely excited about that.
0: Can you tell us more about your career journey to date? What are some of the big moments that have led to where you are now?
1: Yeah. So after schooling, so I mentioned that I um, kind of ended up going – partially through law school, and then decided that's not really going to um, be for me, um, I ended up taking a hard turn and going straight into computer science because I'd always loved computers and uh, knew that I was pretty good at it. Um, I had done some amateur programming as a youth as well. And had enjoyed the process of, of thinking through things in that way. Um, and so I got hired by a transportation logistics company here in Arkansas called JB hunt, um, which is one of the largest uh, transportation logistics companies, uh, around and, um, ended up immediately kind of getting thrown into the deep end, doing some really cool stuff with programming. So, um, we wrote a, a program that allowed, uh, all, all the different trucks around to understand the most efficient way in routes to, uh, to drive in order to, to be economical with their fuel supply, um, when and where they should uh, fuel up and the most economical way of doing that. Um, I also worked on a team that wrote, this is way back um, right around the year 2000, um, wrote one of the systems that allowed truckers to send and receive email uh, inside of their, their cab using a satellite system um and so that was super super cool um thinking about the fact that we were impacting these people's lives that were disconnected from their families for so long uh and allowing them to to communicate in a robust way and so that then branched off into really what became the security journey because email is an interesting vector into security um so I, I did that at JB Hunt. I ended up getting hired by Walmart, which is a super large company for, for those of <laughs> you that uh, that know, um, probably the largest uh, private owned company in the world. Um, and they hired me to write the email system that was going to be used in all their stores and in the Sam's Club uh, club chain um, as well. And that uh, wrote that that got used for about three or five years. Um, as I look back at that now as a security person, there's some horrible flaws that were in it. So I'm glad it's not in service right now. But um, that became a big gateway into security because anytime you're dealing with email, you're also dealing with groups and permissions. And that that meant linking into um, what at the time was that... Uh, you know, uh, Novell e Directory and Active Directory, um, as Active Directory started to g- gain a foothold in enterprises. Um, and once you're starting to deal with group structures and permissions and things like that, um, you're really starting to think about uh, things like least privilege. And so I ended up uh, moving from email into security and doing a whole bunch of work around identity management and then working from identity management into even more core security concepts um, to where I ended up getting hired at Gartner uh, Research and uh, doing a lot of research uh, globally around identity management, around security awareness and CISO strategies and and more, and then ended up um, Coming over to know before about five years ago, where I really just focus on the human. Um, and if I back up a little bit, what I what I can say is that really for about fifteen years, the the epiphany that I kept having, and it's not unique to me. Lots of people have had this, is that I was either spending hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Or when I was at Gartner, I was helping people spend millions of dollars on little bits of technology to help keep the bad guys out, to to help keep bad things from happening to organizations. And over and over and over, what I realized is that we can spend all the money in the world on great technology, but all it takes is one super motivated attacker to trick a human into bypassing all that. Or one negligent human, um, you know, that that may even mean well, accidentally doing the wrong thing, and all of that million, you know, those millions of dollars that we spend on the technology is for naught. The the data breach happens, the bad thing happens, and so that sent me down a road of really being interested in why people do the things that they do and the the mental processes behind that. And so, for, really, for the past fifteen years, in parallel with the uh, security and technology journey, I've been looking deeper and deeper into cognition and the the you know, the mind and why we do the things that we do, why the think, why we think the things that we think and make the mistakes that we make.
0: Must have been fascinating. I mean, over the last five years, just while you've been at No Before, this the threat landscape has changed, but that core kind of element of human like you said, one negligent human on one side and one really bad actor on the other side. That's kind of always remained, yeah. hasn't it? It's just got more and more sophisticated.
1: Yeah, and you know the the stakes keep getting bigger and bigger because it's moved from from phishing to things like business email compromise that may not even have a link with it. Um, it's just pure social engineering, tricking somebody into to doing a wire transfer or something like that. But then it's also Um, you know, it's kind of also moved into this weapons-grade ransomware type of situation that we're in now, where we saw the colonial pipeline attack. We've seen, uh, you know, meat and food processing plants uh, be taken down. We've seen some of the largest and most respected organizations around the world uh, be taken down through ransomware attacks. And the largest vector for ransomware is through some kind of human mistake as well. And so what that means is that, yes, the technology is good, but it's not 100% effective. And if we are neglecting intentionally building up that human side of our defensive posture, then we're we're leaving a lot of defense on the table. Um, I'll leave it that way. um, The way that I think about it is, we can never we can never fully put all of our eggs in one basket on one side or, or another of this. And I, I typically hear people having this debate of technology will solve the problem. And so we need to spend all of our money, put all of our effort into building up better technology-based um, solutions, uh, or humanity is gonna be the thing that fixes it. And so we need to invest way more in humanity and, and training and things like that. Um, And if we're all on one side or the other of that equation, we're actually missing the mark in in a lot of big ways because a human will never be 100% effective. Uh, You and I are always going to have a bad day. We're always going to have a sloppy day. Somebody's always going to get an upper hand. But if we can nine times out of 10 detect that, then that's pretty good. I mean, right now, if somebody develops a really crafty attack, they could probably get us at least half the time. Um, and so, building up the, the, the mental resilience and understanding what, uh, what an attack looks like as that comes in and building up the right muscle memory to defend against that is going to be critical. But if we were to say, well, because the human can only be built up to 80 or 90 percent resilience, then it's not worth it, so we need to spend all of our money on technology. Well, what we've seen is that over the past few decades, People have been basically doing that. They've been spending over 95% of their budgets on technology-based solutions and defenses. And the fact of the matter is the breach problem isn't going away. And so working all, you know that, that kind of all eggs on the technology side has already shown itself not to be effective. And so we need to at least spend several years exploring what we can do on the human side and some, bring some kind of balance to this uh, and actually create a a last layer or a last line of defense where it's kind of been neglected for quite a while.
0: Thank you. And the next section of the podcast is what we call the chief. And it's where we find out a bit more about your management style. Mm. So what would be your advice on the best approach for communicating your area of expertise with the wider C-suite?
1: That's a great question. So the way that I do this, and this is what I recommended to people back when I was at Gartner too, because I did a lot of, um, at Gartner, one of the one of the functions that I had was um, called a leadership partner. And this is basically an executive coach. So I had about 30 to 35 other CISOs that I would set up meetings with and they would call for advice and strategy sessions. And frankly, a lot of that turned out to be um, being the psychologist for the the CISO that was calling in. So you could almost picture them laying on a couch and we're just kind of going through the strategy. And so my, my advice to them and my advice to myself is always to find a way to see the world through the eyes of the person that you're trying to communicate to. Um, so in, uh, you know, in learning theory and in, in psychology, when you're doing, um, some clinical work with people that are on the autism spectrum or something like that, or even, you know, children, one of the critical concepts is theory of mind. And that means understanding that another person, the person that you're communicating with is going to have different thoughts and different viewpoints than yourself. Um, and what I've seen, a lot is that security people are really bad at theory of mind when it comes to everybody else. We, we tend to go and we explain the situation and the threat the way that we understand it. We don't pivot and look at the world through the eyes of that other person. And if we did, I think that we would posture our arguments in the way that we talk about risk and the way that we talk about benefit in a completely different way. And so one of the tools that I developed at Gartner and that I still use today is really a matrix sheet that breaks down each of the different roles that I intend to communicate to and starts to, to say, all right, what is the the thing that I'm wanting to, to sell to that person? Whether that's a you know product that I'm wanting to get buy-in to bring on, whether that's a strategy that I want to move in, um, whether that's just something where I need them to agree that this is the right thing for the organization. Um and then I start to think about, all right, if this person is the head of marketing, what are the things that drives them? Um, what are the things that they might be concerned about relative to this initiative that I want to bring in? Because ultimately what I want to do is I want to be able to posh, you know, bring my statements to them in a way that's best going to resonate with the way that they view the world and the, the concerns that they already have. And so I can also pre-think through any objections that they might have, or they might say, well, this is going to take my people off focus, or this this is going to be off brand for us um, or a host of other things. And I can even, as I'm talking to them say, well, what I, you know, as, as I've been thinking through this, I want to make sure that we stay on brand or I want to make sure that we um, we keep your people as focused as possible. So here's what I'm doing to eliminate that concern. So you can precede that or you can even find a more creative way to, um, to kind of alleviate those concerns. But I want to find ways to think about what are the, the profit and, uh, and what are the profit levers that this person thinks about through the company? What are the personnel levers that this person thinks about? What are their specific motivations? How do I address those? And then how do I alleviate any concerns in those initial conversations? And then same thing for the head of people operations, head, same thing for the head of uh, product and, and so on. So I'm always thinking through all of those different lenses. Um, and then ultimately what that gives me as well is a sense of, of empathy for those people because they're really the people that are making money for the company, you know, versus uh, us in security, which are, you know, typically thought of as a, co- as a cost center. So I'm having to think through all of that. And I'm also having to, to realize that the world and our organization is way bigger than just security concerns. And so that's giving me and giving others as well, a much more, risk-based understanding of the world and saying, yes, there, there do need to be some trade-offs. We, we don't have to, you know, we will never get to be hundred percent secure no matter what we do or um, specifically in my role, it would be great if we brought this product functionality to bear next year. But in reality, I don't think people are going to be thinking about this in the wider market for another five years. So we actually have a little bit of leeway to be working on this. So it, even though this is, front of mind for me right now, it may not need to be front of mind for the organization for another two years, um, as long as we're thinking about it and making sure that we are not accidentally shooting ourselves in the foot right now by not having that, is, at least is uh, something that, that we're pre-thinking through.
0: Okay, so turning our attention to outside the workplace for a second, how do you relax outside of work and unwind?
1: <laughs> um, I don't. Uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately now I mentioned uh, theory of mind before, and I mentioned, you know, um, that, that there are things that, that go with that. Um, I think I use the word autism spectrum. I'm actually one of those people that, that are on that spectrum. And so I'm one of the things that helps me relax is, um, what's known as, uh, if you, if you do any learning about, um, what really fuels people on the autism spectrum is this thing called restricted interests, which for me, a long time uh, for that was, was music and um, technology in general. Right now it is security and all things security um, and ways to, to communicate that better. And so for me, as long as I'm thinking about security or puzzles um, I also, if you look at my background here, you can see a lot of magic uh, artifacts. A lot of that, I think, um, has stayed with me throughout my life as well. So I'm into understanding how um, magic and deception and con artistry and all of that work. And so I'm always doing research there. Um, and then I also develop in my, you know, quote unquote, free time I develop uh, my own podcast called Eighth Layer Insights, and it's a narrative nonfiction podcast that's all about security and deception and the human mind and how all those come together. And uh, each one of those episodes has basically a, a theme with it, and uh, between uh, usually between three and five different uh, interviews within that that are all cut together, documentary style. Um, and so that I spend quite a bit of time uh, putting those together and editing those and getting those out as well. So, um, all of that is my downtime, if you would call it that Mm
0: -hmm. A good way to get lots of different insights.
1: Yeah. And it it all, the, the thing that is either a good thing or a bad thing for me, I guess, depending on how you look at it is that anything that I've ever found that I like to relax and do, I've also found a way to bring into my career. Um, Which means, I mean, the the good thing is that it gives me justification to go way deeper and broader into that interest than most people are able to do. Um, But the downside is that it maybe maybe becomes a little bit less relaxing because then I find ways to add uh, due dates to everything as well. Um, And as soon as there's a due date and a timeline and an expectation to get something out, it does kill a little bit of the joy and the creativity. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then so then I'm always trying to find what's the next branch off of that that's the exploratory fun piece of it.
0: <laughs> Keeps you busy, I'm sure. Yeah. The final section of our podcast is called Getting Down to Business. And it's where we take a look at how you're planning for the year ahead. So what are some of the key goals for you in your role as chief strategy officer for the coming 12 months?
1: I think that there there are a couple things uh, for the next 12 months. Number one is we're always trying to pre-anticipate what the next uh, three to five years looks like. So that's always a moving target. And COVID, return to work, return to office, what the world looks like um, within the next 36 months um, is a moving target as well. You know, I I think uh, a year ago, most most people were hoping that we'd all be back to the office by now and we'd be figuring out what the new normal looks like. And what we're learning is that the new normal continues to shift. And so um, for me as a security person, it's trying to pre-think through um, not only what products we would bring to bear that that meet the new normal, um, but it's it's the why those products should exist in the first place. You know, So what does the new mobility paradigm look like? What does the new uh, disconnected worker look like? Uh, what are the different se- other security products that may be brought to bear, or other technology and communication products that may be brought to bear um, within that environment that may open up new threats that we might need to be able to speak to as well. So it's it's trying to think through an entire ecosystem and then back channel into what that means for our specific organization. Um, and then I have a lot of internal goals of how I you know how I personally improve. Uh, around my communication style, how I um, personally think about delegation, um, how I um, think about even how we look at the broader um, market of potential adjacent products that we may bring as well because of the the different research areas that we have. Um, and then there's another interesting facet of what I own here at Know Before. I own a, another. Uh, Another small department that we call Know Before Research that's all about um, bringing industry research that is non-vendor focused out into the marketplace. And so um, as we're thinking about this new world paradigm that we're in, it is going to be what interesting research um, artifacts can we bring out that people are going to benefit from the most. Uh, and so we're spending quite a bit of time and effort thinking through what the most impactful research is going to be.
0: Okay. And um, KnowBefore is obviously a global business. And how do you say that you shape your strategy to ensure it aligns with the needs of local markets and how important are partners this? Yeah.
1: So global is, you know, that, that is a de facto growth strategy for us. We operate in several markets right now, and we're continuing to to figure out where the the other markets that we need to move into. And within each market there's there's a strategy that we followed that I can speak about very uh, very openly, which is because one of the main things that we have is security awareness uh, training, um that means some of you know some of training is behavioral conditioning, and I focus a lot on that. But a big part of what we think about when it comes to training is content. It's stuff that you put in front of people, whether that's videos or newsletters or posters or uh, all of those things, something that's put in front of the eyeballs of somebody else that they will then consume. Um, And that means that when you're dealing with that on a global scale, there there are lots of considerations that you have on how that uh, is localized. You know, how is that meeting the language needs? How is that meeting the local culture needs so that you're not accidentally alienating people? Um, And the strategy that we've had is that we've typically found people that are already doing that well in a country, like um, in South Africa. Uh, We found a company there named Popcorn Training run by a, um, a wonderful security practitioner named Anna Collard, um, and we bought that company because they were the best in the area. They, they were already doing that great, um, but they had limited reach. And so we bought that company um, and expanded what they were already doing well to what they were doing better on, on a global scale um, because they met that market well. Um, same thing in other regions. Uh, we did the same thing uh, in Brazil, I bought a company named El Pescador, already you know, did great Uh, Portuguese language content and localized language for the Brazilian market and then brought that to scale, Um, just field them even more. And we do that over and over and over again, because the last thing we want to be is kind of uh, ignorant um, North Americans with blinders on and trying to blast content out to the world and believe that we understand all the different cultural nuance because we don't. And that's where we'd seen people fail in the past. So for us, it's understanding the fact that we are serving a diverse um, global population that has a lot of nuance with it. And we have to do that in a way that that resonates with each specific population in the best possible way. And that even goes into the different types of population within each organization. Speaking to um, a call center is different than speaking to uh, a you know the IT group within an organization, and speaking to the IT group is different than speaking to the executive team, and so we have to break up and uh, and have nuanced language in all of that as well. And then you mentioned the partner ecosystem. For us, uh, the partner ecosystem is the way to go when we when we work globally, and so we we fuel the partner ecosystem and we enable the partner ecosystem because they are the way to achieving scale when it comes to sales.
0: We've talked about the impact of COVID over the last year and there's been various lockdowns and restrictions at different times and at different locations, but there has been a big emphasis on providing very good customer experience, both a challenge and opportunity. How has this impacted your own strategy?
1: I mean, for us, it's a continuation of the same. Um, One of the things that has made No Before kind of have this explosive growth. Um, So if you were to look at know before um, compared to most of the other vendors that serve the security awareness market, one thing that you'll notice is that we're exponentially larger than anybody else. Um, I I think our public number right now is uh, that we have over 41,000 global customers, which is just huge compared to anybody else. Um, And so the only way that you get there is through having fantastic, I mean, Fantastic customer service to the point where people are just unexpectedly blown away by it. Um, And I think that that just continues in the era of COVID. Um, One of the things that we did immediately when the pandemic hit and when people were kind of, you know, dispersing to their homes is we started to rethink and say, what do we do to support people in this environment? And we immediately spent weekends and, you know, everybody working around the clock saying, how do we create custom content and custom um, ways of approaching things that are going to meet people in this, this time of need. And we are constantly releasing um, either, you know, free articles or free videos to the community of things that says, you know, put this in front of your people or use this as a resource to think about how you can better impact and communicate with your people. And I think that it is that that drive to continually serve our customers and to pre-think through and pre-anticipate what is going to um, meet and exceed their expectations for things that they've not even thought of yet that is going to continue to help us to succeed. And so that's, that's what we're always doing. We, we try to keep our ear to the ground as much as possible. Um, we do a lot with data-driven surveys. We have a really... Um, a really driven and success-focused uh, customer success or customer service management team that's always talking to people. Um, and ultimately, we never rest, I think is the biggest key that we have there, is we never believe that, we, that good enough is ever actually achieved. Because as soon as we think we're, we're good enough, then the target's changed.
0: And that brings us to the final section of the podcast where we hand over to you. You'll have roughly two minutes in against the clock where you can speak uninterrupted on your area of expertise. The main thing to bear in mind here is what one piece of advice is that you'd like to share with other C-level executives or a lesson that you'd like to pass on. So whenever you're ready.
1: Okay. So the way that I think about, um, and I'm going to talk specifically about security awareness and trying to get our messages out um, is I really believe that whenever we're speaking to people, one of the problems that we have is we believe that if we just give people information, they will naturally do the right thing. And what science shows us and what, um, our experience shows us, is that there's a gap between knowing something and actually acting on it. I call that the knowledge intention action gap. So just because I know something doesn't mean that I intend to act on it. And even when I intend to act on it, I may not action that. And so there's a gap between knowing something and inten- and intending to act on it. And there's a gap between intention and action. And then out of that, I talk about uh, three realities of security awareness is just because I know something doesn't mean that I care. So just uh, you know, just because I know doesn't mean uh, that I care. Number two is if we try to work against human nature, we will fail. And number three is what our employees do is way more important than what they know. And when you think about the implications of that, it really changes the dynamic of the way that we communicate and the way that we start to build our security structures. It means that we become way more focused around behavior, way more focused on culture and influence, and we stop just kind of shouting into the wind and hoping for the best, and we stop developing policies that are ignorant of humanity, and we start focusing much more on relationship. And I think that that carries over into a broader way of thinking about all of the way that we relate to people around us.
0: Perry, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on At Sea Level.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of this edition of At Sea Level. To our guest, Perry Carpenter, Chief Strategy Officer at Nob4, thank you for joining us today. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we look forward to bringing you the next edition of At Sea Level very soon.